Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plick, here with my co-host Octavia Bright. Today, we're discussing talking animals, not just the ones from children's books, though we may not escape without an intense discussion of Watership Down, but also the complex animals that have populated adult books, from Orwell's Animal Farm to Bulgakov's Devious Cat Behemoth in The Master and Margarita. With us today is Max Porter, whose first book, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, features crow, antagonist, trickster, healer, babysitter, who visits a family in the depths of their grief after the death of their mother. Octavia and I will also be discussing the theme and giving you some book recommendations, so stay tuned. Before we begin the interview, Octavia, could you please introduce Max? Sure. Uh, Max Porter works in publishing. He lives in South London with his wife and children, and Grief is the Thing with Feathers is his first book. Very succinct introduction. I believe that's your accepted um, biography, though, isn't it? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I think a long biog is uh, not the thing for a short book. I think if I'd written a thousand-page masterpiece, I could do the whole. While I was writing this book, I was very influenced by, you know, Leonard Cohen, and thank you. But no, I think that, especially because I work in publishing, keep all that out of it. Short, sharp. Do you have anything else you want to say about yourself? Well, you have the mic. Tall, pale, <laughs> hunched. I don't know. <laughs> I won't uh, <laughs> agree with that. But <laughs> um, So, Max, could you start with a reading from Grief is the Thing with Feathers and yeah. set it up a bit? Uh, yeah, the book is, a, is um, as Octavia said, is a book about a man whose wife dies. And uh, on the very first page, he's in the flat on his own. And there's a ring at the door and it's it's crow and uh, this crow is and isn't Ted Hughes's crow this man is a Ted Hughes scholar so he's obsessed with Ted Hughes and he's writing a book about crow but this isn't necessarily Ted Hughes's crow he's sort of Ted Hughes's crow once removed and mixed together with the mythological bird the real bird various different kind of cultural uh, roles that crows have played over the years uh, and he lives with this man and the, and the two sons and the book is in three voices, boys, crow, and dad. And the boys are both boys, either boy, the whole time they, they interchange. And part of their game is this kind of switching of narratives uh, about their experience of grief. So I'll read a crow section first. It's written in, it's kind of a collage of short sections. Crow. I've written hundreds of memoirs. It's necessary for big names like me I believe it is called the imperative. Once upon a time, there was a blood wedding, and the crow son was angry that his mother was marrying again, so he flew away. He flew to find his father, but all he found was carrion. He made friends with farmers. He delivered other birds to their guns. Scientists, he performed tricks with tools that not even chimps could perform, and a poet or two. He thought on several occasions that he had found his daddy's bones. And he wept and screamed at the hateful goshawks, Here are the grey bones of my hooded papa. But every time when he looked again, it was some other corvid's corpse. So tired of the fable lifestyle, sick of his omen celebrity, he hopped and flew and dragged himself home. The wedding party was in full swing, and the ancient grey crow, rutting with his mother in the pile of trash at the foot of the stairs, was none other, none other than his father. The crow's son screamed his hurt and confusion at his writhing parents. His father laughed, conk, conk, conk. You've lived a long time and been a crow through and through, but you still can't take a joke. Dad. Soft, slight, like light, like a child's foot talcum dusted and kissed, like stroke reversing suede, like dust, like pins and needles, like a promise, like a curse, like seeds, like everything grained, platted, linked or numbered, like everything nature made and violent and quiet. It is all completely missing. Nothing patient now. Thank you, Max. It's perfect. Um, I think those two little fragments set against each other shows how different the three voices of the book are. Mm. So can you talk a bit about how you decided to have those three voices and how you developed them. Yeah. Uh, well, if we go kind of in order of appearance, Dad is um, the most conventional voice. Um, actually, no, boys appear first, so uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, boys. 
are, as I say, these, these they're, they're two boys. They they play with the sibling relationship. They are, in a sense, the sibling relationship personified. That 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 they are uh, the lateral relationship, which I think is enormously important. Anyway, I think I believe that the, the lateral relationship is the thing that fucks you up, you know, a, as opposed to your mum and dad, um, or as well as, as the case may be as for well most as of us. Yeah. Right? <coughs> and um, so that's the boys, and, and they are ageless, they, they are timeless, they, they, they veer between childhood, they're, they're, never, they're never dated, um, and, and adulthood, and they play around with each other's memories of the time of their mother's death. Then there is dad, who is this, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the kind of most, uh, the plainest, blankest character in the book. He is the one upon whom most of the action is visited. He has been decimated by the loss of his wife to such an extent that all we really see of him is what's coaxed out of him by the boys or Crow. He is a sort of relational character. He only exists in the relations between him and his dead wife or him and his sons or him and the bird. He's sort of sweet. He, he, he's a scruffy, I call him a scruffy academic at some stage or something. Uh, so they were the two voices that were, as it were, most naturalistic and most straightforward to write. Uh, and then there is Crow, who was the most pleasurable to write, the, the, the fiercest pleasure, and also the most difficult, because I didn't want him to be Hughes's Crow. That was one of my initial uh, intentions, was that he wouldn't have the language of Ted Hughes's Crow. I would be appalled by that. But he is, he has knowledge of it, and he, he plays with that um, representation. Um, he's a trickster, as you as you said in your introduction, but also he he's the key visual component. So if the book is set up as a triptych, and his development across the whole is is the sort of meaning of the book. So he is raw trauma and interruption and threat in the in the first part of the book, but he's also very witty. He's a sort of scholar of his own uh, arrival, and he's very very self-conscious about the role of analyst. So in the second part of the book, he becomes much more like an analyst. And his, his method is more therapeutic. Um, and then he gets into that. He starts to enjoy it, and he has fun, and he becomes quite literary and enjoys his various different um, manifestations in their life and elsewhere. And in the third part, he, he, he more or less takes on dad's voice and becomes dad's friend. And that's where any sense of redemption or hope um, and uh, you know, tying back to the Emily Dickinson thing, that's where, it, that's where hope and <coughs> perches in the soul when, when the dad and the crow become friends. Um, so that's their voices. Yeah. Very comprehensively described. <laughs> um, I, I shut up. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean that's that's how I would have described them too. I love I love Crow's voice. I love I love all the Crow parts. I find it um, really energizing reading his voice Good. because he has that brutality mm. that is not what you're expecting. I mean, when I picked up the book, grief. And Crow, I was thinking, oh God, is it going to be really sentimental? Because it's it's mm. easy, especially when you're anthropomorphizing animals. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered if you were concerned about that as a as a worry when you started writing. Well, he is. I I, I wasn't um, because I'm very resistant to sentimentality, but I'm also very into it. Um, so the one of the kind of key moments in the book for me is when Dad is at his most sentimental. He's talking about how much he misses his wife and how he'd like to build a monument for her. And Crow says, "Ugh, you sound like a fucking fridge magnet." And that—that that was the kind of—that's um, the knowingness about the process that Crow brings to it, and ultimately, that's the—that's their redemption. Um, sentimentality, I think, is kind of difficult. I was saying uh, somewhere that there's this thing I had been—I had read somewhere that you can't kill a cat on. Uh, uh, if you kill a cat in a novel, it won't mean anything unless you know the cat. So we know the relationship between the animal and the humans and the anthropomorphization has been fully built in to the architecture of the book. And I sort of, as a poetry reader, I was like, I'm not sure I really believe that, you know, which is why I kill the wife on page one and begin from there. I think that's why, that's why it took the form it took in between. I mean, children's stories are often staggeringly um, more adept at, at, at grief and trauma than adult books because they get straight to it. S same with poetry, same with the fables that were a big influence for me, Russian fables in particular. The first line is, you know, there were two princes, their mother was dead. One was lazy, one was kind. Bang! And you're, and you're there. And wh why, 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 why do we need 300 pages of, of middle-class angst to get us to that point of recognition, which is universal? So, yeah. Can you talk a bit 
about why you wanted to use crow. Now, of course, there's that echo of Ted Hughes, mm -hmm. but our theme today is talking animals, and it seems like crow comes from a lineage of characters, as you were just talking about. Uh, well, I ummed and art about crow. I don't think I ever considered any other animals, but I did consider um, Telemachus. There was going to be, it was going to be waiting. The thing was going to be not so much unfinished as it is now, the theme being unfinishedness, but absence and waiting. Um, so there were other devices I considered using, but the crow just, uh, as for anyone that's read it, I think, or many, many people that have read it, it, it it's, such, it's such an unbelievably potent and unattractive and ugly thing that it was a perfect choice of Hughes's. And then as I got more and more interested in Hughes over the years, it, it, it seemed that he had been haunted by it. And it basically was too good to resist. Um, it tied in so much with my thinking about the number three and about Dickinson and blackness and, and progress and also these moments in writers' lives when they don't have any choice. And it's always Crow that is just, when I read Ted Hughes's letters, Crow was hopping around in Hughes's periphery in the reading he was doing and his thinking about faith and form and all sorts of things and, and, and primitive cultures and such. And, and there was a sort of mischievous to him. And then there, there, there came a certain point. I, I, I won't say like I saw a crow on the street or something, but I sort of rolled over and just accepted that it, there was so much there, I couldn't really resist it. Um, and I, one of the things I thought about a long time ago was, and never did because I thought I'd get sued, was, was doing an annotated crow where 30 years after crow was written, crow would revisit the text with all the biographical information now available on Hughes and also 30 years of life and nuclear warfare and all the things that Hughes was thinking about, but also the sort of 20th century being looked at again by one of its most mischievous and thus um, insightful characters. Do you see what I mean? A bit like a bit like doing an annotated Batman where the Joker is 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 analyzing and helping Batman through what it meant. I haven't seen Birdman, but I guess that's the same sort of thing Birdman's about, right? Like the, the person yeah. you played is coming back to see how you played him. And um, and I also just love crows. I got quite into looking at crows. And as a character, ornithologically speaking, they are unbelievably interesting. So then I did a bit of crow reading, and it was kind of no, no going back <laughs> from that <laughs> moment. Yeah. There's a line in there. I, I'm going to misquote you, but it's something about the crow being in an attitude, being poised um, always for violence, yeah. and that was incredibly evocative for me and anyone because that the kind of forward pointing of their beak—it's mm. mm. such an aggressive mm. style. Mm. Um, There's an amazing. Have you read um, poetry in the making? The essay that Hughes writes about no. writing. I think he wrote it for children, but it's in his collected essays called Winter Pollen, and he does this thing about why poetry exists and how you would meet someone in the street and just know you just have a sense of what they're like, and it's a it's a third eye. And he was saying that's the poet's job is to get these things down. And then he says you can describe a crow using language. And he then just like rattles off an example and it's devastatingly good. He talks about their haggardliness and their, 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 their being poised for um, lift off. And you know, it's just an extraordinary piece of writing. And you read it thinking, God, you know, what a writer. And then he says, and all that means nothing when you actually see a crow. You know, there is always the gap between what you can achieve in language and what you actually see when you see an animal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that brings me really nicely to what I wanted to ask next, which is about the kind of the the play, the interaction between the unconscious and the conscious in the book. Because for me, and this is my personal reading of it, but the crow character sort of feels that he's kind of pure, libidinous, unconscious energy. And then, as you said, the dad is sort of the vacancy. He's def mm. defined by his empty space. Um, and then the boys as you don't write them with individual characters and individual names, they become this symbol for sort of childhood and memory seems incredibly important mm. in the book as well. Mm. And as you said, analysis. And I was just wondering if, if any of that was deliberate or if it was a happy accident of as you were working on the process of the book. Uh, I don't know how much is happy accident, but I got very into this Id uh, idea of wild analysis. Um, I'd done a bit of it, uh, looked at it when I was uh, studying um, psychoanalysis, and, and, and I don't think it ever really came to much, this idea of wild analysis, but the I it was Freud, I think, and the idea was that the analyst removes the um, frame of the, the clinical setting and gets down and dirty, basically, with, with the patient so that the trauma becomes, you know, so that they become complicit and therefore their em empathetic range is greatly increased, and it's not always something you should do because there's an irresponsibility to it, but the, the idea was that, that that's what Crow 
is inviting the dad to do. He goes there with him, and similarly that he he melts and plays with and um, uh, provokes this this like highly charged consideration of of the relationship between them. So sometimes the dad is is as you say uh, this sort of ridiculous um, symbol of, of of brokenness. You know, like when he's in the bed and he and they're saying he's dead, and Crow is mischievously saying, "I think your dad is dead." And then other times he he is educated by Crow to start being more honest and more self-conscious and sometimes just more straightforward. You know, the bit where Crow says, I'm going to finally tell you. And he's like, no, you don't need to anymore. And that's the point of it. And, I, and I'd and i wanted that to almost not go by unnoticed, the change between them, until you arrive at that point. And then I wanted the reader to realize that dad was awake and in the room and parenting again and, you know, all that. So I, I think... You know, yeah, yes, it was a happy accident, but also that's the joy of the, the the number three for me. That's the joy of the triptych, is that when you have it in place as a structural um, system, you inevitably go back and touch part one to fix part three, and you fiddle with part two because t you've turned something down in part three. Um, and that was, once I'd got it down, that was just <coughs> enormously pleasurable. And I think pleasurable for the dad character as well just to come alive again a little bit. Um. The style of the book is, I think I can say, very innovative um, <laughs> in, terms, in terms of what's being published right now. Um, how did you arrive at this style and were you ever concerned that it was too out there? No, no, I can. I was. Uh, well, I wanted it to be accessible to people, like my mother-in-law, who doesn't read uh, experimental fiction. I wanted her to get it and enjoy it. Uh, she hasn't read Crow actually as well, so she's the sort of person I was thinking. I hope she gets the the story here, or I hope I don't put so much nonsense poetry and in jokes about Ted Hughes that she can't get it. So that was important. But also, no, I I saw no limits really with the with the style. Um, I want. Uh, I toned Crow down a bit. You know, um, at the very end, he has a poem, and it's his first poem, and it's the only real poem in the book, and it's this, it's it's his permission to leave, and it's and it's his, the ripening of his character and everything, and it's his first true. It's the first time he's not really performing; he's actually speaking as he would speak. He's 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 my Crow finally kind of landing on my how I would write him if I had to write him. If you see what I mean, um, and I. There were other poems in it. There was there was a bit more of that, and I, 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 I somehow felt it wasn't really true. Um, uh, truth was the thing for me, really, and honesty. Absolutely wanted it to be as honest as it possibly could all the way through, and sometimes I felt that I was sort of giving him this slightly kind of Russell Brandy um, swaggering sort of. You know, you know, he says stab it a lot. Yeah. There was a lot more of that. He, there's a lot. There was a lot of swearing and stab it and cop it and and um, and I sort of thought, no, no, no. That's that kind of belongs in the first part. But actually, he's looking after children. Do you know what I mean? There was a sort of slight sense of responsibility to it, and I wanted it to be a more generous reading experience for the reader than that. I, wa I wanted people to be sort of sucked in in a, in a in a pleasant way, because it is it is like a stage play, and I think. I don't know, I was reading reviews of this Cumberbatch Hamlet the other day. <coughs> Someone was saying one of the disappointing things for them was that he's made to do stuff, like stride across the stage shouting, and he wears a jacket that says King, and, and it all felt quite un-Hamlet, and it didn't quite feel how he would have done it if he hadn't been directed that way, and that's a bit how I feel about Crow. I, I wanted, you know, I maybe if I was directing Crow, I would have just been saying to him, tone it down a bit, like, the initial shock is gone, and we, you, we need to see a more rounded character. <laughs> <laughs> And talking about um, thinking of your readers as well, I mean, the, the book's full of literary references of all kinds of different kinds. Um, and there's one point where, where Dad is saying, you know, he doesn't need more time. He needs Shakespeare, Shostakovich, Howling Wolf. Howling Wolf's one of my favourite artists of all oh time, so I was really happy about that. Um, Remind me to tell you my Howling Wolf um, backpack story. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell it now? Uh, <laughs> it's embarrassing. <laughs> when I went to <laughs> secondary school, everyone had band names written on their bags. Like, in I wasn't really into indie music, and um, they all had bands like um, Silverchair and um, 
Nirvana, I guess, you know, kind of 90s grunge and stuff. And I just sort of panicked and wrote Howling Wolf in <laughs> massive <laughs> letters on my bag. And I remember people being like, did you get a new bag? And me just having to go, oh, like, another one I had at home, oh, my God. Howling Wolf bag. <laughs> 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 it just misfired spectacularly. So but now, painful. if I saw a kid walking down the street with Howling Wolf on his bag, oh, I'd think, boss. what a dude. Yeah, yeah, he really knows what's <laughs> up. I know. Um, well, so Howling Wolf... Um, yeah. And and that list of things, Shakespeare's Shostakovich, just this idea of um, you know art culture being a balm for pain, mm. um, and it made me think of uh, Louise Bourgeois print where she just writes, "Art is the guarantee of sanity," mm. which embarrassingly I nearly got tattooed across my chest as a sixteen-year-old girl. So there we go, we yeah. can trade stories. <laughs> Pretty glad I didn't do that. But I just I wanted to to just sort of put that idea out there as well and see see what you have to say on it. You know. Well, it's funny that yeah, I mean um, it's brilliant that you mentioned Louise Bourgeois because she is enormously important to me, and there is a, a whiff of her in Crow, and the wisdom that the boys. Uh, one of the only other characters in the book is the grandmother, you know, where they go up and she has that little chat with them, which is effectively feminism boiled down, like like livable feminism boiled down to a kind of realistic package that your grandmother might say to you on her deathbed. And that's Louise, Bour that, that, that's Louise Bourgeois and my grandmother combined. And I think that if you're a, a child and your symbolic world is full of, as I say in the book, crayons and thundercats and transfer tattoos and that kind of thing, the greatest gift I think you can be given if you're in, an in, in a visual environment or an arty environment is um, eccentricity and a whiff of danger and the surreal and or the uncanny or this, and, and again, we like back to Russian fairy tales, the sense that, or, or Norse myths or anything, um, children are capable of extraordinary um, insight and resistance and, and, and depth of understanding with dark material. Um, so yeah, um, Louise Bourgeois is there. <laughs> and speaking of art as a bomb for pain, this is a book about grief. It's a book about intense grief. It's al also a book about healing from grief. And um, I've spoken to many people who said it really reflected their own experiences of it. But do you think that in its darkest depths that art is accessible to people in in the sort of depths of grief? Or do you think that this is the kind of book, or, or any art really, that people would need to experience after the fact, once they've gotten out of that sort of messy, um, intense period that you brilliantly depict through mm. the sort of uh, horribleness of Crow, the, the mm. scratchiness? Oh, good question. I mean, I, I don't know if I know enough about grief, you know. I mean, he says this thing about it being a long-term project, and I I have been most moved and most capable of insight into my feelings for people many, many years after the fact with strange geologic, like topographical or, or climactic stimuli. You know, you suddenly find you miss your grandmother or whatever, suddenly like a kind of kick in the gut 15 years later or something. Um, and it, and it, it's art, it's sensory, so you remember what you were reading and eating and stuff like that. You know, the smell of fried bacon gets to me because of my grandmother. Those those sorts of things. But as in terms of receptiveness, you mean to to art. Um, I think when you're when you're in in a state of intense grief, you are mad. Uh, in, you know, as we should be very often in our lives anyway, may, if not all the time. And your 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 receptor cells are are skew with. I think it's a bit like the teenage brain or something. Mm. You know, when the chemicals in the brain are such that teenagers don't realise they're being dickheads, or they don't understand that they they're losing all their um, their empathy receptors, so they don't know why it would annoy their parents so much. They relate those sorts of things. I think grief. I don't know whether this is in any way scientific, but I think it's the same thing. I think you're changed for a period. Um, and therefore, you might be incredibly receptive to some things. Mm. I, don't, I don't know. I mean, certainly, I, I binged on certain things at times in my life that I can't go back to now um, because they were, they were connected to those times. But similarly, um, I've been very horribly unmoved by certain works of art that 
are supposed to move me. I just maybe I'm cynical or I'm a snob or something, but uh, some things that are that purport to be about grief or loss do absolutely nothing for me. I smell a rat and I don't I don't believe them, and I certainly wouldn't go to them. Like I'm always surprised when people say they read that C.S. Lewis book, "Grief Is Grief Observed," when they're grieving. I, I worry about that. Um, I, I would I would think it would be better to read it later. But I don't know. I don't know. Well, don't know. Sometimes people need a, a midwife to their emotion, don't they? Yeah. And actually, the figure of Crow in this book kind of acts in that way with the, yeah. with the dad. Um, but this is the sort of thing that... This is exactly the kind of discussion they're having at the end of the book, is that what, what was I doing? And what was I re how receptive was I to what you were suggesting? And mm. what was it you were suggesting? How did we get here? And all those sorts of things. Um, yeah. I really, um, I agree with you what you were saying about grief taking us to a place of madness. It's almost like where the borders between the two parts of the mind collapse. Mm. So you don't have conscious and unconscious. You mm. have this kind of swim um, experience of just swimming in mm. reality. And there's a, a bit where it, it's a, a part towards the end of the book, I think maybe in the second part, maybe in the third part, where it's a letter from dad to the boys mm. saying, mm. don't worry about doing things mm. and don't worry about not doing things. Mm. And that really stood out to me because, you know, this is a book that's so much about internal processes mm. and memory and experience and love and loss. Mm. And the, the kind of world of bourgeois materiality feels mm. so mm. completely irrelevant. Mm. Um, and I love that. I, and it made me think of the surrealists also because mm. it's that kind of territory. It makes me wonder, though, do you violate the natural process if you tell that to someone? So one of the things I didn't include, but I think is true, is that you, you could say to a child at your most at the most formal moments of your grief, for example, at a funer funeral of a parent or something, you may have thoughts like, oh, I, I, I'm hungry, or who's that, or I don't like her shoes, or I don't want to get an erection, or whatever you're thinking about as a 13-year-old as a boy in a funeral service. And that's fine. That's why grief is such a puzzling thing, because the banality is also present. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you, you're just so bound up with guilt that you're thinking about trying not to get an erection in the church. The, 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 you, the, you're like, I'm not grieving properly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. this is the thing. This is what Crow is the permission giver for, is that grieve any way you want. And we'll talk about it in a little while. You know. Normally, I hate asking authors how much of their life is in mm. a book. But I almost can't help but ask it with this book because it seems so personal. And it seemed so mined from human emotional experience. So... Um, what what of your life is in this book? Um, surprisingly little. Surprisingly little. Mo most of it's made up. Um, I mean, uh, the 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 object stuff. Uh, much of it's made up. Uh, I do have children, so some of the stuff about parenting, I suppose, is is enriched by my experience. And I maybe couldn't have written it uh, ten years ago. Um, my wife is alive and well. My mum is alive and well. Uh, my brother and I were were in my dad's flat when he died and some of that's true or you know some of that's based on my memory of that time and my brother's memory of that time and um, we did kill a guppy fish <laughs> in a rock pool yeah it was really horrible really horrible i've never I, i've never hunted or killed anything since never i don't yeah i mean i think i like maybe once tried to shoot a bone arrow at a rabbit and failed but i remember what it was like to kill something as if it was yesterday and i really didn't like it Neither of us did. Probably the key bonding experience in my childhood was that horrified, horrified at each other, horrified at ourselves, this shocking moment of complicity that we'd done this thing. Because it had taken us a while to do. And that was, you know, so when, I, when men talk about the thrill of hunting and stuff, I'm like, you just, you, you should have worked that out a long time ago that it's wrong. I don't know, you know. So that's true. Someone said to me the other day, the silver, sp the throwing of the spoon out, that must be true. <laughs> nope, made that <laughs> one up. <laughs> but that was the thing, that when I talk about the structure, you know, once you set it up, you can then start making things up, which is great, great for me because I'm not, I've never been a fiction writer before, so I, I felt lovely doing it. You know. This is probably a question I should have asked from the beginning, but um, if it wasn't that informed by your own personal experience, how did this book arrive? Um, for you, and, and why did you feel so compelled to write it? Uh, well, I, I just uh, did, really. I've always wanted to write these stories about these brothers, and then, then I, it was nagging at me to do something with Ted Hughes' Crow, like a graphic novel or something. I tried to do the graphic novel and found out I couldn't really draw very well, or it took too long. I drew, drew this thing based on a dream I had about Beckett, and it took ages, and then I was like, oh, that's not good enough. 
And then I just, um, and there was a sort of slight trigger. I had, a, I, had a, I saw an old friend of my dad's, and then, I, and then I sort of thought, oh, I'm going to just do that book. And then I, just, I saw quite clearly the three parts of it, and I went home and had a lovely little routine where I'd put the boys to bed, and I got this old Mac laptop out and found a charger that would charge it while I, you know, and it just was the thing I was going to do for a while. And it was a lovely thing because I didn't think about anything, publishability, who would read it, how long it should be. And I don't know how I would recreate those conditions, but I briefly had them. It was wonderful. Just got into my own space. Um, also, the uh, the crow baby, uh, uh, it, was, it was an idea I felt I could, you know. It wasn't like sitting there for months and months or years and years while I was working in a bookshop thinking one day I'll, <laughs> I'll write a 14,000 word long prose poem. Um, it, just, it just was a compo it just arose and felt good, felt right. I believe in doing things when they feel right and not for the sake of it. Um, partly because of my day job. I meet, you know, you meet and you read a lot of things that have come from people desperately wanting to write something of a certain length that looks like something else, and I don't think it's especially help healthy. Um, so I would rather wait and see if anything bubbles up like this. And and if it, if I could, I, I really strongly think if I was a musician, it would have been an album. Um, if I if I was a sculptor, you know, it would maybe it would be a giant thing in the t you know like a Louise Bourgeois giant weird scrawled embroidered thing in a gallery but I'm not an artist so it's a great way to think about art as something that's that transmutable I hope so it's how Patti Smith thinks about art to you thank you <laughs> <laughs> Max Porter thank you so much for coming on Literary Fiction thanks for having me the book is called Grief is the Thing with Feathers and it is published by Faber was Max Porter talking about his book, Grief is the Thing with Feathers. And inspired by Max's book, we are talking today about talking animals. Talking about talking. <laughs> Animal grammar. Thrilling. <laughs> so um, as Max's book demonstrates, talking animals aren't just found in children's books. But um, when it came time to research this theme, a lot of the books that come up are children's books about talking animals so why why is this such a pervasive thing that happens in children's books do you think i think first of all it's a important distinction to make that it children's books just because they're in children's books doesn't mean that they're coming up in relation to um childish themes and actually as max sort of touched upon in the interview um you know there's a the sense that in childhood we're even closer to some of the biggest emotions that we feel and the biggest fears and and stories and there's something that's so simple in the figure of the animal, right? Because we, we anthropomorphize them. We can project whatever we want onto them. So weasels are a bit mean and lions are noble and elephants are uh, ancient and, you know, snakes are nasty. Um, and I think that we run out of... Uh, 
as we grow older, we want more detail, you know? And there's something that's so simplistic in the kind of fable-like structure of having a speaking animal. But when we grow up, and we get interested in realist literature, we want to know about the clutter in the bedroom, and we want to, you know, we want more things that we can relate to our lives. And as we age and our lives become more cluttered with things, maybe we want to see that reflected in the literature. Yeah, I think that's that's a good theory. I think it's also about the imaginative leaps that children's can, children, <laughs> children's, <laughs> children, uh, that, ch that children can make because a talking animal doesn't exist in the world. And um, as adults, we love to slap labels on things. And if things that ha happen in books that don't happen in the world, we say, oh, it's fantasy mm -hmm. or, oh, it's um, magical realism. Whereas for children, there's, there, you know, there, there's no kind of, you have a sense of what's real and what's not real, but the the lines are much more blurred. Absolutely. Um, and so talking animals uh, seems to be a much more exciting and possible thing that could happen. Well, my dear Carrie, you could actually say that we are all simply talking animals. <laughs> yes, you, you <laughs> could say that. You could Octavia. say that. Um, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I do. And I think as sort of... Um, well, you know, we spend a lot of energy, expend a lot of energy in in helping children to enrich their imaginative lives. And then and then we expend a lot of energy telling them to forget it all when they get to school and have to learn serious things, um, which I think is a real shame. But then there's also, you know, there's lots of children's books with talking animals in that are not childish at all, like Narnia, for example, um, you know, which is obviously pseudo-religious bullshit on some level, but phenomenal stories and and adventures and you have Aslan, you know, wonderful, godlike Aslan. Um, and the themes in those stories, much like in fables, are kind of warnings about the complexity of, of life as an adult, you know, and loyalty and love and loss and um, lineage and all of that. Um, maybe because, and I was thinking of the Wizard of Oz as well, you know, these figures that we can distill their um, essence. Like I said, you know, proud lion, noble lion, kingly lion um it's kind of a shorthand for something that can be understood by a child Do, and yeah. it's kind of a common understanding well andrew hagan wrote a very in my opinion long-winded but uh <laughs> <Ooh>. helpful <laughs> piece well and a little all over the place um a piece in the guardian a few years back i think in 2010 or something after he published a book from the perspective of marilyn monroe's dog about talking animals which was very helpful preparation for the show <laughs> um but his whole thesis as far as i can tell um amidst the flotsam and jetsam is that um Ooh, yeah. oh my god i'm being so cruel it wasn't a that bitch. um <laughs> is that animals there's something about animals that um, means that they can impart a nobility upon an idea or a trait or uh, a, a type that humans can't. Um, and maybe it's just about the sort of the innocence of the animal in the first place, even if we put upon them traits like trick trickiness or mm. evilness. Um, we still know animals to be uh, ultimately innocent creatures in the world. And somehow the way that they experience and tell life becomes more elevated than humans living it. Yeah, because it's guileless and it's based on instinct. Um, personality doesn't get in the way. But we could be completely wrong. Yeah. So what were your favorite uh, talking animal books as a kid? Oh, man. Well, Narnia. I loved Narnia. I really, really loved the, the Narnia Chronicles. My mum used to read them to me in bed. And um, I used to dream about Aslan a lot. I always over-identified with Aslan because I have a god complex, clearly. Um, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, it is weird, I know. He's Jesus. Well, don't split hairs. <laughs> um, <laughs> I also, um, I loved uh, Animal Farm. And I read that as quite a young child. Because mm. that was my, my key uh, adult novel example. So <laughs> you've ruined it, but go on. <laughs> no, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, because I always thought that politicians looked like pigs and it made sense to me completely. I think I read it when I was about 11 or 12. Um, what else? Well, Tarka the Otter. That was a devastating read as a young girl. I can't think of any others. The, well, the one I'm going to wait because it's my recommendation. Okay. I loved this book called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, which... I don't think really has made it over here, but it, it won the Newbery Medal or something like that in the 70s. It was it was written in the 70s. And I can't remember the author now. I should have written it down. But um, 
it's about this uh, colony of intelligent rats um, who are living Amazing. on a farmer's land and they've made this whole society. And then the farmer, of course, is going to like destroy the land and blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, I probably loved it just because it was like humans, but it was these rats in, in this confined world. Um, and they were just people, mm. but also you have that thrill of, of a society that's going on right under you, literally under your boots that you know nothing about. Um, and this idea that animals could be intelligent, I think that's, as a child, that oh is yeah. really compelling. So um, compelling. That, you know, the rat that I see scurry by actually has thoughts and has built a little underground lair. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Also Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's kind of Web. A similar thing where uh, it's just so touching. <laughs> sad. <laughs> it's I mean, very that's sad. There's a lot of sadness. Sad animal because books. It's the nature, the brutality of nature, partly. I just was thinking of The Wind in the Willows as well, which obviously was a, is a real classic and, and adored. Um, but yeah, it, 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 they are often sad because, uh, because they're fables, they're allegorical. You know, and that's kind of the role of the fable, the allegorical story, to educate. Yeah, and maybe it's easier to talk about death when it's not Humans. a human child. Absolutely. You can't kill a human child in a book, but you can sure as hell kill all the, the rabbits and water the babies. Down. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, let's <laughs> talk about adults now. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, we touched on Animal Farm. Um, and I do think, you know, there, there are less talking animals in adult novels but they certainly exist um and they're complex and interesting and weird mm. um uh, master and margarita um Behemoth. yeah which is that that is one of the most pleasurable elements of that book and you get the sense you know um max was talking about how he loved writing crow mm. you get the sense that bulgakov really loved, loved writing that cat yeah Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we also have touched on allegorical meanings, and um, you see that a lot in adult novels, Animal Farm, for instance, which is an absolute classic um, of the animal talking genre. Mm -hmm. And it's because um, Orwell has touched on the way that we tend to treat animals and characterize animals and turn it into brilliant satire. Yeah, totally. And, and again, that thing that you were saying about it's easier to kill off baby animals than baby people, it's kind of it's easier to display that kind of nasty, evil, conniving, political blah, with pigs, you know, and, and animals, <laughs> because it's it's a step back, and it, it can you can again you just distill the essence of each character. So you have this caricature. Well, they think about it. I mean, Lenin and Trotsky, you know, they they become um, caricatures in history anyway. You know, these dogmatic, maniacal leaders. What do we think about the ethics of all this? Because ultimately making animals like ourselves are denying them their true nature. Their authenticity. It's a it's a project in vanity, isn't it? I mean, it's it's reasserting our dominance over the globe, um, that we can imbue each animal with its own characteristics and we have absolutely no idea, you know. And actually, it seems to me that as we evolve and time moves on, we understand more and more about the intelligence of animals and how they are m way more capable of things that we consider ours than we necessarily believed. I mean, you see dolphins and um, dogs and, I don't know, all these kind crows. of things. And crows, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the bird world is phenomenal for that kind of thing. Yeah, and one... You know, nature writing has become really popular and nature writing, a lot of people hate that tag. But um, this whole debate is raging in that community about how do you write about nature? Do you write about it filtered through our experience? And in some ways, there's no way to avoid that. Mm. But also, shouldn't nature, and this includes animals, be granted the dignity of being written about on its own terms? Yeah, I agree. And and with awe and wonder and an understanding that we don't understand it and that we can't have mastery over it no matter how much we try. Yeah, and it's uh, very unfair to the snake. I know, the poor old snake. <laughs> and the fox. <laughs> yeah, foxes. Well, Fantastic Mr. Fox actually was another favourite book when I was uh, a wee thing. Roald Dahl was very good at that kind of thing, actually, of, of giving um, his animal characters human-style complexity mm. and not just shrinking them. Um, okay. Um, well, let's get into our recommendations. Uh, do you want to start, Octavia? I will. I will. Um, I wanted to 
talk more about Bulgakov's Behemoth, but I feel like I talk about this book so often on the show that I'm going to leave him to one side um, and recommend, a, uh, well, going in via the character Yorick Bernison, who's an oh. almond bear, armored bear, not almond bear, from Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy and um, one of my favorite characters ever in literature to be written in the history of literature ever that I have read. Um, so the three books are called Northern Lights, The Subtle Knife, and The Amber Spyglass. And um, I remember reading them when I was about 11 or 12. Um, I actually went to interview Philip Pullman for my school newspaper, and they didn't run the story because another girl interviewed Jodie Kidd, and they went for that over. Who is Jodie Kidd? She was a model. The other girl is a dear friend of mine still, so I, I, I'll button it. But anyway, the wonderful Philip Pullman, who wrote in a shed at the bottom of his garden and had a computer completely covered with uh, fake flowers, and he had a blind, deaf, three-legged cat and was a complete delight. Um, but Yorick Bernison, who is this armored bear, um, they're these talking polar bears called the Panzerbjorn, who live in Svalbard, and they are these frighteningly strong warriors. They wear special sky iron armor, um, and they follow this really strict moral code of conduct, which is a, you know, a clever thing to do when you have these characters that are filled with such potential violence and so such strength that they have this boundary around their behavior. Um, and Yorick rep represents this kind of noble warrior figure who's loyal to the end, absolute loyalty, um, brave but foolhardy, and this sort of giant beast, capable of great violence, but crucially with a really gentle heart. And he forges this lovely friendship with Lyra Balakwa, the protagonist of the books. Um, and it's just, he's just a blissful character. He really is, and he is not one-dimensional at all. He has the complexities of a human being, but Philip Pullman, writes so well in this kind of nuanced way. And those books are sort of the atheist cry out against Lewis and Narnia. Um, and it's so interesting to see, you know, someone who's creating something that's speaking to the Narnia Chronicles, but taking it in a completely different direction. It's not about um, idealizing or kind of making things. It's not, a, Philip Pullman's books are not overly sentimental. It's one of the things I love about them. And although they were aimed at a younger audience, adults can get just as much from them i think so yeah i would really recommend the audiobook of, oh absolutely um, uh, all which of is, them which is they have a full cast and jornik bjornesson especially i just have this um memory of listening to it as i was driving to college i think and um lyra being like jornik bjornesson <laughs> which is a terrible impression but <laughs> <laughs> it's great I, yeah, I love them also. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I am going to talk about a book or a graphic novel, to be more specific, that I think we have mentioned before on the show, but um, just immediately sprang to mind when I thought about talking animals. Um, it is Mouse by Art Spiegelman. And um, in this graphic novel, Spiegelman tells the story of his father's experience in the Holocaust. Um, but all of the Jews are mice and all of the Nazis are cats. Um, I think this use of animals is really brilliant for a number of reasons which have been talked about in many publications. But basically, um, it, it points to the way that the Nazis so easily divided people into cats and mice. And actually, they, the, a lot of Nazi propaganda um, referred to Jews as things like rats. So oh, he's, he's taking that from history. Um, but I also think it gets at the animal's ability to say the unsayable. I think... Um, Max Porter was getting that that with Crow, that Crow can say things that people can't articulate themselves. Mm. Um, and this is very different, obviously, but um, these cats and mice somehow tell the story of a really, really horrible, unspeakable atrocity in a better way than humans could. Um, and it's very powerful. That's interesting, and it bypasses the sentimentality Yes, and again, it's again, it's about sentimentality I think that's in a way. At the core of it, isn't it? Yeah, um, and with the Holocaust, especially, it's like, do you even depict the Holocaust? Can you ever Can you turn even? this into mm. art? Can you ever turn this into poetry? Um, and you know, Hannah Arendt basically said after Auschwitz, mm. poetry is barbaric. Um, I think was how it's translated. Um, but I think this makes a powerful. Uh, statement about what art can actually do and actually um the the more figurative and representative it is exactly the, the the in the distance. way that the more true yeah yeah i i've never i've never um read mass i will 
You should read it. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and we have Max Porter back to give his book recommendations. Um, Octavia, do you want to start with your recommendation? Absolutely. Um, I'm in the middle of a book called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, and I'm enjoying it a lot. I wish I'd finished it, but I haven't had time. And it's one of those books, whenever I have to put it down to fall asleep, I don't want to. Um, and... It's set in the late 50s. It's about uh, a character called Reverend John Ames, and he's writing this letter to his young son, um, sort of charting their family history. Um, but the thing that's uh, exquisite about it is her writing. She has such a light touch, um, and it's infused with this real kind of pan-human spirituality, which in this book is you know, attached to a particular denomination, but I don't think that really matters. Um, whether you're atheist or, or religious in any way or agnostic, uh, it kind of touches you on a really deeply human level. Um, and she's, yeah, it, through this character, philosophizes about love and pain and, um, and thought and philosophy and how it's accessible to all of us if we want to kind of open our minds to it. Um, and my mum really loves her, and she actually gave her th me three of her books for my birthday, so I've got to hurry up <laughs> and read them all. Um, but they're all... Uh, it's set in America, and they're all kind of featuring the same characters meandering in and out. So I, I'm pleased that I'm not going to have to leave her world when I finish it. Um, and I would recommend it very wholeheartedly to everybody. I'm going to second that recommendation. Third it, third it. I love her. She's one of my favorite authors. And I actually think Housekeeping is is the best. That was her first novel. That's, that's next. Yeah, there's something about... Uh, I, you just don't read very many novels that talk about faith in an interesting way. And that's one of the things I love about Marilyn Robinson, though I am a, a total atheist. She makes me want to be religious in a way that nobody else really does. Yeah, I think because she really has an understanding of what, what the human spirit can gain by having a relationship with a higher power, you know, that's, that's not, it doesn't come through any kind of morality or dogmatic bullshit that a lot of the time you know I bristle at if I if I sense it in a religious context um, that's what I think she does so brilliant is it's just so human you know like you said it makes you want it makes you want it because it, it she kind of shows how it can open up this different part of your life your human experience having this inner inner relationship yeah it's very empathetic writing mm. um, my recommendation will maybe not come as a surprise. I know I've been banging on about the series for the last year, but I just finished the fourth and final uh, Neapolitan novel by Elena Ferrante, and I can't think about anything else, so I have to recommend it. Um, I, For those of you who have not had to hear me talk about this before, <laughs> this is a chronicle of two girls growing up in a poor neighborhood in post-war Naples and their long and complicated friendship. The last book follows them as adults, so from about their late 20s into old age. And I, I think it's probably the saddest and most reflective and most depressing volume of the bunch. So it's not necessarily a happy series. And I read it in this sort of, I read it in pretty much in one day um, when I was having a cold and I was laying in bed and I would read it for two hours and then fall asleep and sort of dream about it and then wake back up and read it again. Um, but it's just so compulsive and compelling. And when I finished reading this final novel, I was trying to think about why I love these books so much. Um, and I think one of the reasons is what an incredible project of realist fiction it is. I, I almost can't imagine that these characters aren't real. And, and she, of course, is playing with that too because her main character is called Elena. So it has the same name as the author. But it, it just every single th conversation that happens and smell on the streets and thought that the characters have seem so real and so vibrant. Um, but it's also because it's so honest. Um, you know, she's she's so honest about how nasty and competitive friendships can be, especially female friendships. She's so honest about our tendency to define ourselves through other people. Um, and you know the difficulties of sex and childbearing, things that people don't talk about and don't even talk about in novels. And to read it is refreshing and 
terrifying and sort of cleansing in this really amazing way. And um, I just I just can't recommend this series enough. The four novels are it's a masterpiece and it will be a classic, I'm sure. So that's my recommendation. Um, Max, do you want to? Uh, I'm gonna because you've chosen realist novels, both of you. So I'm gonna. I've changed my recommendation seconds ago. I'm gonna veer into non-realist to a book called The Vor. Have you heard of The Vor? No. It's by this guy called Brian Catling, who's an artist and a poet, and it was published by a small press. <coughs> I think he's been working on it for years and years. It's part one of a proposed trilogy, and it's a fantasy. Not it's a fantasy novel. And I'm not a fantasy reader, especially. I like it sometimes, but this is just, uh, I think it will be a classic. It's just so, from the very first page, when a man builds a bow out of his dead wife's, dead partner's body and fires this arrow, which sort of starts the book off, it's just this astonishingly controlled and unbelievably well-imagined world with strange uh egg like aliens that have sex um incredible sex with the with this character there's um this sort of throbbing thing the vor this sort of weird primal eden that sort of can adopt or destroy the human consciousness if it goes too near to it but then there's this kind of wonderful steampunk uh urban subplot going on and it's very very complicated and and then edward mybridge is this recurring theme throughout it he's 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 simultaneously the actual Ebra Mybridge and, and also sort of inventing this horrendous machine through it. It's the kind of novel that if someone described it to me, I'd be like, oh, that sounds great, not really my bag. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go for Gilead, thanks. Um, but it is just so, so startlingly well written. It's um, Anyway, so it's been bought by a big publisher here, a, a Hodder imprint, and you can buy it in hardback, and it's got this very beautiful sort of schematic cover. And if you Google Brian Catling a bit, one of the characters in the book is a Cyclops, and... Um, the symbolic themes of, of, of the Cyclops occur throughout it. Um, but there are these incredible self-portraits that he's taken using mirrors and, uh, and folding images of him with one eye. And I, and I sort of made the mistake slash right move of, of looking at these images before I read the book. And they haunted me throughout the reading of the book that the author was also this sort of monster. And then I met the author, and he's the nicest man. <laughs> and that shouldn't matter, but it does. And he's lovely. Uh, so you have The Vor, V-O-R-R-H by Brian Catling. He's a visionary masterpiece. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, that is it for today's show. Thank you, Max Porter, whose first book, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, is published by Faber and Faber on the 17th of September and to Eddie Knight for production. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or on ntslive.co.uk. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Please leave comments and ratings. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs> <laughs>